Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Greg Hurwitz, thriller writer and best-selling writer of the Orphan X series. The latest Orphan X novel, The Last Orphan, has just been published. Lee Child wrote about the Orphan X novels, outstanding in every way. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to be here. Sure. Someone hasn't yet heard about your latest novel, The Last Orphan. How would you describe the novel? Well, it's it's sort of the pinnacle of the Orphan X saga. First of all, anyone can get and come on board with this book. Everything is reset. So it's not that you have to read it in a chain or an order. Um, but for people who have, it's pretty amazing. Orphan X is a assassin. He was someone who was taken out of a foster home at the age of 12 and raised to be an assassin off the books. Um, and his handler, Jack Johns, the most important thing to him was to keep Evan's sense of humanity intact. He always told him the hardest part isn't making you a killer. The hardest part is keeping you human. And so basically, that those are two trains headed for a collision. And at some point, Evan flees the program. He goes off the radar and he operates by himself. And in The Last Orphan, this is the moment that everything catches up to him from his past. And they manage to have a massive, massive manhunt uh, and assemble and get him. And no one, no one less than the president of the United States uh, tells him that he's either going to be executed or commit one last mission that they need him for. Uh, and so now he's got a choice uh, on the line, which is, does he follow his ethics uh, or does he sacrifice his life? And is there a way for him to possibly manage to do both and get out of this impossible situation in which he finds himself in the first 50 pages of the book? And I'm curious, are you viewing this as the last Orphan X novel? Um, I am not. I am not. The title, I'm getting a lot of questions about that. Um, but no, this is, uh, you know, as long as people are are reading and engaged with these Orphan X books, I'm having an absolute blast writing them. I've never had as much fun writing and working on a series as I have with this. And so this is a pretty big one. Um, a lot of things are going to change after this book, but it's not going to be the last Orphan X. That's great. Well, I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Last Orphan? Well, I think after so many books where Evan has successfully navigated staying one foot ahead of the DOD, of the government, of uh, you know, all the rest of the orphans from the orphan program who were tasked with coming after and assassinating him. You know, Evan doesn't just know where the bodies are buried. He's the one who buried most of them. And so determination was made as soon as he left the program that his, you know, the information in his head meant that it was no longer safe to keep it attached to his shoulders. So they've been trying to kill him for a long time. And in the meantime, he's been sort of helping other people who are in desperate need. They can call. There's a 1-855 number. It's one eight five five two nowhere that in fact readers can call and you can see if Orphan X himself answers the phone. <laughs> um, and that's how he gets it. You know, he's basically has become a pro bono assassin helping people who, who literally have nowhere else. They're in such dire straits, they have nowhere else to turn. And when I was thinking about this, I really thought that I wanted to write something that shows a different side this many books in where he gets recaptured, he gets sucked back into the belly of the beast and he has to make a whole bunch of choices that are very different than any he's made in other books about what he's willing to do and what he's willing not to do 
um, to save his own neck and what they need him to do. And they want to put him on one of these missions. You know, part of why he left the program was the mission ceased aligning with his moral compass. And he swore he would never again go on a mission that didn't line up with his own internal sense of ethics uh, that were embedded in him by Jack, his handler. And so here's a situation where he's captured. He's told that he has to have a mission. He has to execute somebody who the government has deemed is too dangerous to remain alive. And he has to decide what he's willing to do. And it just seemed like a perfect trap for Orphan X. Um, and it also elicits in him a great deal of trauma after all these years being captured and taken. And so it cracks open different parts of him and being able to explore the psychology uh, and his emotional state of what happens to him from being found and captured and controlled so absolutely was something I really was interested in exploring thematically. Well, I'm curious, did you sit down at some point after the first book or two and, and kind of do an arc for the, for the next five or six books, or is it something where you just take each book uh, as it comes? It's a very strange combination of both. It's, it's an interesting question. It's a bit like how I plot the individual books, which is I always have a sense of where things are going. I ha and with the books, I have ideas for future plots. There is definitely a progression of the types of stories that Evan confronts and the ways that it cuts open parts of himself. Um, you know, it's really a story about becoming human. It's a story about cracking open and breaking from the rules and regulations that govern often the first part of our lives. With Evan, he has the Assassin's Ten Commandments that were handed down to him, many of which he's been forced to break over the course of these books. Or I should say he's learned to break. He's had to learn how to operate in the world differently as he's letting in and learning to speak. Uh, you know, I say about intimacy that Evan, having been raised separately and largely alone, never learned the strange language of intimacy. And the series is very much about him continuing to learn that. And so I knew that there were different plots that would serve as building blocks for him um, or that would present different challenges. I always want the external stakes to get higher as well as the internal stakes for him. So I've always had a sense of that. It hasn't been something that's been rigorously charted because as I write each book, my understanding evolves further about where I want to take this character and the resolution level of what's coming more acutely and more immediately gets higher and higher. But I usually am thinking pretty clearly at least two to three books ahead in, in terms of the general plot and where I'm going to take him. And, you know, this was one I've been waiting to, to write for a lot of years. Well, prior to the Orphan X series, you wrote several novels about a U.S. Marshal, Tim Rackley, and you also wrote several standalone thriller novels. What led you to write the first Orphan X novel? So it's an interesting question. The Tim Rackley series, it was early in my career, and there's four of them, and I always knew it would be roughly a tetralogy. I, I, it wasn't ever going to be a series that I was going to write forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as you mentioned, I wrote like a bunch of, I don't know, 10, 11 kind of standalone Hitchcockian thrillers with an everyman protagonist, right? Where we're meeting somebody, an ordinary person on the worst day of their life in just an extraordinarily difficult set of circumstances. And those really owe a debt of gratitude to Hitchcock above everything else. Um, and those books are um, 
trust no one, the crime writer, they're watching, you're next, the survivor, tell no lies and don't look back. Uh, and one that I wrote earlier before the Rackleys, which is called Do No Harm. And with the Orphan X series, I had the idea to write this. I had the rough frame or notion, but I was scared to write it, to be honest with you. I didn't want to write something that felt like it was in any way typical or any way that it felt like it was beholden to other series. And so I wrote four other novels, keeping this on the back burner and continuing to think about what are the things that will differentiate the series that it'll have, I hope someday, um, can be mentioned in a breath with those other protagonists uh, who hold a place in the pantheon, who I grew up loving, whether it's James Bond, Jason Bourne, Jack Reacher. I mean, we all know that list. Um, and so it took a long time for me to figure that. And one of the things was, I wanted stories to arrive to Evan Smoke from a variety of different angles. So I wasn't just sort of locked into one source of stories arriving. And so there's mythology stories where his past catches up to him and the stuff that he underwent with his training. Um, you know, the stories about the orphans. There's numbers that come on that encrypted line, the 1855 to nowhere. They can come in through that way. There are stories that come in from him continuing to move among real people. He hides in plain sight. He has a penthouse on the Wilshire Corridor near Beverly Hills. Um, and he lives among other people who he's constantly trying to decipher because he doesn't see the world <laughs> through small talk and through kind of normal social engagements. And so there's all sorts of different ways that stories can arrive and all sorts of different ways that I sought to differentiate him from any other protagonists. Um, and then I felt like I was finally ready to sit down and start to write his story. Well, one thing that stands out in your Orphan X novels is the level of detail. Details about guns and weapons, martial arts, various devices and technology for self-defense. I'm curious, how do you research the novels and do you shoot guns yourself at a shooting range or train in martial arts? Well, I'm not a gun person primarily. I have people who are a lot smarter than I am. I mean, that's one area of expertise that is that feels almost limitless. Like if you talk to someone who really knows weapons. And so I have a lot of friends who were former SEALs. I have a lot of friends who've got me on ranges. I've shot all the guns that Evan has shot from custom, you know, 357s to Benelli combat shotguns. Um, I make sure that I experience it, um, but I like to go out much like Evan in a lot of ways, you know, Evan's training was he have one-on-one -on -one sessions with people who knew everything about one topic. It's one of the, the things that makes Evan somewhat unique. He's not the most handsome guy like Bond. He's not the biggest guy like Reacher. He's not the best shot like Swagger, but he's been trained with people who are exceptional in every aspect of this. And so in a lot of ways, he's like Ulysses. He's the man of many wiles, and he has to bring the totality of himself to a mission. Um, it's not dissimilar. I trained, I did some mixed martial arts training before starting these books uh, with somebody who, you know, knocked me around a decent amount um, so that I could experience it. You know, the sensation you have when you, like face pain has a distinct uh, sensation to it that's different than pain in other parts of your body. There's a feeling of claustrophobia when you're being choked out. So even me showing up and getting battered around, but within safer parameters with somebody who's an expert is really helpful. Same thing with hacking, same thing with shooting guns, same thing with technology, same thing, frankly, with art, same thing with samurai swords, you know, like one of katana blade plays a role in one of these. 
And so what I want to do is I'm, I'm not in the business of writing um, kind of gun and action porn, right? Where it's just where I'm like fetishizing the details, but I have to get them right. There's too many people who are the real deal, who are former military, who are former cops, FBI, or hunters who really know and understand weapons. And the aim is to get everything right or close enough to carry readers across this, the, the, the sort of suspension of disbelief. I, I'm aiming for verisimilitude. Um, and I want enough telling details in there that people feel like it's real without me spending pages and pages writing about fighting techniques and weaponry because they aren't those books, but the books have to speak to people who know and understand that the same way I have to do the same if I'm writing about psychology or art or vodka. I have to get the details right. Sure. Well, what was your initial writing journey that led you to sitting down, writing your first novel and submitting it for publication? You know, it was the only thing I ever wanted to do in my life. I loved books so much. I wasn't allowed to watch television growing up. I went to the library twice a week. Um, the only TV I was allowed to watch is if there was Hitchcock on uh, or if the Red Sox were on because my dad's from Boston and that's religion. And so I read all the time. And it was, it was, you know, I had an experience, I'm sure much like yours, much like a lot of your listeners, that it was magical. It was transporting. Um, I just loved it. And, you know, when I was a kid, I slept with a dictionary. <laughs> I loved words. I think in words. I wrote mysteries and illustrated them with crayons when I was in middle school, um, was writing, you know, doing writing competitions in my high school. And then when I went to college, I studied English and psychology um, as a combination that I thought would, would embed me the most in stories and narrative structure, right. In a lot of different ways. And I started writing my first book when I was 19. And I think I was too young and dumb to realize that this was an incredibly challenging field. And I probably should have been a lot more intimidated than I was, but I had a bit of the arrogance of youth and, and I loved it. Like nothing was going to stop me from doing this. And I got incredibly, um, fortunate to be, to be honest with you. I mean, I sold, I wrote a very, very mediocre <laughs> rough draft of a book in the summers before and after my junior and senior year of college. Um, I got an editor who was brutal, who ripped it to pieces. Um, I mean, an agent, sorry, who, who, who kind of worked with me and I really rewrote, I wrote like 16 drafts of it. And then I was incredibly fortunate and I sold it. And I, um, so I was able to maintain a writing career pretty much right out of right out of school, um, which was extraordinary. And I was so grateful that when that happened, all that I did was say, look, this is the only thing I've ever wanted. Now I better take it seriously. I better write from nine to five every day. I'm not going to treat it in any way like a hobby. I'm not going to fit it in only when I'm feeling like writing. I need to figure out and build discipline around this because I've been granted this incredible opportunity. Um, and that's what I did. I started to write, you know, with an, with an unbelievable focus on how grateful I was for this opportunity. I didn't spend a lot of money. I mean, I remember every time I did my first deals, I would kind of carve it up and figure out the cheapest I could live on every month to have more months in the bank that would let me write. It was almost like money was almost like fuel for my car or for the, <laughs> you know, for, it was like gasoline, right? Like, oh, cool. I just got another eight months I can write or a year and a half when I sold a book that I can write. I just was, it's all I wanted to do. I mean, I would have lived in a tiny little studio apartment for the rest of my life. Um, so, 
you know, it's, it was great in that it's, it's can be a very challenging field, but I think I was really fortunate in that I knew that it was what I wanted to do. That's great. Well, you mentioned some of this earlier, but I'm curious, what is your writing process when you're working on a novel? You said you have kind of touch points in your mind and as opposed to like an extensive outline. How does that work yeah, for you? It's, it's a rolling outline. I have a big old monitor that can fit two documents side by side. One is the outline and I'll, I'm, I'm, I call it almost like, I call it a rolling outline. And the other is the novel and the rolling outline expands and breathes as I write. I wait until I have a good amount. It's usually 15 to 20 pages of just bullet points, roughly organized into different shapes and different characters, uh, like, you know, lines of dialogue. It's a bit messy, but it's roughly organized. I usually know the first, call it three to four scenes that will open the book. And then I have these big placeholders. The metaphor that I use is like, have you seen those indoor rock climbing walls? Yes. Or I suppose outdoor rock climbing walls as well. <laughs> so I know, for instance, there's a big chunky anchor somewhere in the, let's say the middle of the second act, a big scene that I know that I'm going to get to. I don't know if I'm going to get there with my right foot or with my left hand, but I know it's going to be there. And I know there's enough scenes for me to get across that wall in some way, but they move around a lot. And so that outline kind of lives and breathes much the way I was talking about laying out the life of the series. And so as I'm writing the first chapters, maybe a character comes to life and starts to breathe differently. And then I can start to add different things about those engagements through the rest of the outline. Or, you know, I'll drop a, you know, I can get to something later on in, in, in the writing and realize, oh, I want to go back and drop a handkerchief earlier in the book so that this is a payoff for nuance. And so both documents are constantly evolving. And what tends to happen is the rolling outline kind of gets bigger and bigger. It tends to swell to, I don't know, between, call it usually around 25 pages as the writing happens and it expands and expands. And then it starts to contract as those scenes are assimilated into the novel. And when I'm done, I have usually, you know, a 400 to 450 page novel on one side of the screen. And then that rolling outline has been assimilated and it's empty and I just trash the file. <laughs> you don't save the file. Well, no, cause I'm deleting it as I go, <laughs> yeah, as I, right, right. but I do save the roughest one because I found now and then I'll cut a scene, you know, or something. I'll be like, I don't need this. And I'll cut a whole chunk out and then I'll get further in the book and go, wait a minute, where, where was that? scene that I thought I, that I dispense with from the outline that I need. So I can go back to the older version of it and pull it out. That's great. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? 
window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Um, treat it as something that's sacrosanct to you. You have to elevate it in priority above all else. Your time. You have to be selfish with your time. Uh, because if you don't, there's always something more pressing to do than spend day 132 out of 365 or 700 writing a novel. If you don't make the time special, if you don't protect that time with some degree of selfishness and some degree of discipline, it won't get done. And so that to me is the shell around which the phrase when people say, look, you just need ass and chair time. You need to be sitting down and doing it with some regular with some regularity. That's got to be protected. And the other thing is, you know, the most important thing that we have to offer is our voice and our perspective. And not everyone, there, there's some places who say, you know, anyone can be a best-selling, you know, novelist, take my course, pay me money, I'll teach you how to do it. I don't believe that's the case. I think that that everybody can certainly write and enjoy writing. There's some degree of factory issue software that you need in your brain, right, in order to think, in order to, you know, people teach structure a lot. A lot of the courses emphasize on that because that's quite learnable. But dialogue and character um, and nuance are, are difficult to teach. They're just a muscle that has to be there that you build. And so the most important thing young writers can do is to really pay attention to what to read all the time. First of all, like I didn't, I never took a writing class or read a writing book. I just read, you know, five, 10,000 books. Um, and it's to really pay attention to what things create a sensation inside yourself when you're reading. You know, what are, what are the things that, that feel different, that don't feel like it's writing on a page that feel like they're taking residence inside you. And the other thing is, is people tend to underestimate what it is that they have to say, the uniqueness of their experience, the uniqueness of their perspective. And more than anything, when people talk about voice, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot, you know, in a lot of kind of writing forums, let's just say. But the way that we approach something as writers, the way that we bring parts of ourselves to any situation or circumstance is the thing that is the most unique. And so don't cover that up by becoming or leaning towards pale imitations of what other people, a paler imitation of what somebody else has done. Nobody needs a Michael Conley ripoff. Mike does what Mike does exquisitely. And no one's going to out, out Mike Connolly, Mike Connolly, right? No one's going to figure out how to embody a Megan Abbott plot better than Megan Abbott. It's just not going to happen. 
And so what you want to do is to cultivate and nourish the part within yourself that's that. It's sort of like this artistic pilot light that's the reason why you're drawn to doing that. And you need to shelter that and you need to grow that. And that doesn't mean not taking advice and not realizing where your writing needs to be improved and not choosing, you know, people who are who are uh, effective and tough critics. Um, choose them sparingly and then listen to them. But you don't want to go off course from what it is that is the source of your interest and passion and drive. Because at the end of the day, uh, I've not met a writer who's successful where it isn't a bit of an obsession or a compulsion to write. And so you have to feed that desire and the need to want to write. That's the most important thing. That's great. Well, I'm curious. You talked about earlier how um, how soon you got published compared to some other people, you know, right out of college. I'm curious if you've ever thought about if you hadn't sold a novel back then and self-publishing or indie publishing via ebooks had been available, do you think that you would have um, gone the indie publishing route? You know, I don't know. It's so hard to put myself in those shoes, you know, because <laughs> A lot of the harshest criticism that I got from which I learned the most was in the course of jumping through hurdles and knocking through doors in the process of getting agents, getting editors, hearing feedback, rewriting, you know, hearing from fans, getting stuff reviewed more widely critically. Um, and look, not everybody has that advantage. In some ways, getting published young was an advantage and a disadvantage. Um, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, well, not really a disadvantage, I should say, just had it carried with it some challenges as well that I had to deal with. But, you know, I think that there certainly are people who've exploded out of self-publishing. It's it's harder and it's rarer. And the 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 necessary levels of quality control aren't in place across the boards with self-publishing, though some people are exquisite and they find that and they find editors and they you know, have found a way through to, to, to produce and to, you know, propagate some pretty special stuff. It's just a rare, harder path. And I grew up very much through the other route. So it's hard to kind of imagine or think about that. That was always the the path I was headed on. And it's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm just shy of 50 here and, you know, I don't feel overwhelmingly venerable yet, <laughs> but I really did grow up in a very different industry. Sure. Um, you know, we didn't have ebooks. We didn't have, we didn't real audiobooks were sent out in these big puffy cases with <laughs> cassette tapes. You know, it, it was very, very different. I mean, I would, and so it's, it's so funny to be of an age now where I, I still feel relatively, uh, young. Um, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm, I'm very old in general for the age of a novelist. It's one of the great things. It's not like being a TV writer or something where there's a lot of ageism. There's, there's great long careers that people have, but the industry has changed so fast and so rapidly, um, that it's, that it's very interesting to look back and to see who's doing what and how they're doing it now. Um, it's just very hard for me to reset the foundation for me, which was books, libraries, bookstores, you know, whether it was Walden books or crown books or local bookstores I would drive to or, or bike to when I was a kid, I used to bike down to the library that would sell, you know, the used books from the library to raise money. And I get the Stephen King books. They were like a dollar each for hardcover, right? <laughs> I still have them all. 
And so it was such a different kind of era uh, that I kind of grew out of and then have adapted through to, oh, I need a website. Oh, what's online? You know, ebooks are exploding. What do we do with that, right? How do audiobooks can now be downloaded? And so I'm all about kind of embracing and welcoming new technologies, right? And there's different challenges and drawbacks for all of them. Um, and I say that also as someone who, as the, I'm, I'm one of the co-presidents of International Thriller Writers, and we definitely have a, you know, policies and sections that are, they're inviting authors who are self-published um, in. We just have different criteria, the way that we have, we have certain criteria when people are published more traditionally for what we can welcome them in. So to me, it's not about it being kind of an exclusive club or experience, but it's about really trying to figure out what are the parameters that we are defining the form and defining the art and defining the group in terms of what the kind of um, quality is that comes out the other end. And whether you're self-published or traditionally published, if you write something brilliant, you write something brilliant and the world's going to notice and wake up to it. Well, are you working on a new novel now? Yeah, always. I have the next Orphan X um, I'm editing and I'm tinkering around with the one that's going to possibly come after that. So I'm always kind of working away on multiple projects between books and movies and comics and other things. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? You know, I'm rereading the Robert B. Parker Spencer for Hire series. It's so good. It's just staggering. You know, and in a lot of ways, I didn't quite realize why I was going back to reread them all. And then I realized that so much of what Parker was doing in the Spencer books is what I'm striving to do with Orphan X in the form of thrillers, which was he really took the private eye into the personal, right? It wasn't, it's not Hammett. It's not, you know, kind of the James M. Cain, Dashiell Hammett, um, Raymond Chandler Ralph that we're as accustomed to, or even John D or Ross McDonald, but he wrote a character who cooks, who talks about intimacy. He's got a relationship. It's very jokey. He's also very tough. He's, he's sort of stitching the private eye into the world as we know it in a different way is, is one of the great transitions. And I see that picked up in a lot of ways, most clearly in the work of, of my close friend, Robert Crace. Um, and in a way, with thrillers, with this sort of tougher, um, higher stakes world of thrillers, which is differentiated a bunch of ways from, let's say, mysteries, I'm doing something that's not dissimilar. Or I'm trying to do something that's not dissimilar with Orphan X. I'm trying to take a hardened archetypal character and show his thawing into greater humanity and greater understanding of the world around him as somebody who's not equipped to do so. Um, Spencer's pretty equipped to do so from the beginning. Um and so I've been rereading that and just loving that. I just read um, My Sister, the Serial Killer by Brathwaite. It's, it's amazing. She's an incredible Nigerian writer. It's very kind of hard noir and yet feels contemporary. Uh, it's a really fun book. And I just finished Lisa Unger's Secluded Cabin, um, Sleep Sex, um, which, is, which is really good. Um, it's it's sort of a domestic uh, thriller where a bunch of a bunch of a kind of family and group of friends go off to this cabin and there's all sorts of secrets um, and and hidden agendas that come to deadly light over the course of of a of a long week um, and so that that was another book I really enjoyed lately. 
Uh, in terms of nonfiction, I'm reading Aftermath that's about the process in Germany um, after World War II of how Germany had restitched and reconstituted itself. I'd never really thought about that. I'm, I'm very interested in World War II. And it's amazing. There was just like, you know, square meters, dozens and dozens of square meters of rubble to every living human in Germany. I mean, it was just decimated. And I'm very interested in how that culture and how that society was rebuilt and how structure was put in place um, in the wake of, you know, the most staggering extremism and polarization that we've probably seen uh, in recent history. And so it's very interesting to me, not just we talk a lot these days in the culture and in politics about polarization and extremism. Well, how is it rebuilt? What happens after it? And so it's a very it's a very interesting book um, that's that's kind of eye opening in a whole variety of different ways. Interesting. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels and your Orphan X series? Well, I'm on GregHerwitz.net, um, not GregHerwitz.com. Um, there's a gentleman on GregHerwitz.com who is a a music director. Spells his name with the extra G, just like me, uh, who got in there a little bit earlier. So my website's gregherwitz.net. There's lots of stuff on there about Orphan X and about other stuff. Um, and uh, additionally, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. Um, and so those are good places to find me for updates. I do have a newsletter where we tend to send out advanced content, the first cover reveal, the first excerpt from a book, you know. Um, and so that's something that people can find me on and sign up at the website um, and get kind of an earlier peek at all things Orphan X. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Greg Hurwitz, thriller writer and best-selling writer of the Orphan X series. The latest Orphan X novel, The Last Orphan, has just been published and it's on sale now. So go buy a copy. And Greg, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. The bar here in the middle of the desolate nowhere was little more than a sparse wooden structure composed of beams and walls, well-loved chessboards on tables, a foursome of burly Icelanders in football jerseys, picture windows overlooking miles of blindingly white tundra, decorative puffins peeked out from the shelves of bottles. Evan took another sip of the limited-edition batch he'd traveled over 4,000 miles to sample. Silky mouthfeel, rose and lavender, a hint of grain on the back half. He set his shot glass, fashioned from glacial ice, down on the bar before him. It was promptly shattered by the elbow of one of the footballers wheeling drunkenly to grab at the waist of a passing female tourist. Evan exhaled evenly and swept the ice remnants from the bar. Though the young men were rowdy, cocky, and redlining their blood alcohol, he could sense that they weren't awful guys. But they were on their way to becoming awful, if no one provided a course correction. On Evan's other side, a lantern-jawed retiree was bragging to a gaggle of Australian co-eds and anyone else within earshot that he'd been a member of the legendary Viking squad SWAT team known as Seresveit Rikisle Greg Lustierans. A handsome man of few years past his prime, he basked in the glow of the young women's attention. 
Buoyant and amused, the Australians fumbled through his pronunciation lessons. Well-built, with beautiful smiles and generous laughs, they hung on his words, as pleased by the unlikely company as he was. We have no standing army, the former cop was telling them in near-perfect English, so we're the last line of defense when it comes to facing deadly threats. Evan leaned forward and flagged the bartender for another shot. As it was being poured in front of him, another of the footballers snatched it from beneath the bottle and slammed it. Evan stared at the pool of vodka puddled on the bar between his hands. Then, up at the bartender, a pale Nordic towhead. Would you like to talk to them? Evan said. Or should I? The bartender shrugged. There are four of them, and we're way out here. There's nothing to do. Well, Evan said, not nothing. The bartender gave him another shot, this time safeguarding it through the handoff. American? he asked. What did you come to Iceland for? Business? Whale-watching? Evan hoisted the shot glass. This. You flew all the way here. The bartender's mouth cracked open in disbelief. For vodka? Why not, Evan thought. He'd arrived at a point in his life where he was finally capable of indulging small pleasures. To say the least, his childhood had been rough and tumble. Pinballed through a series of foster homes, he'd been ripped out of any semblance of ordinary life at the age of twelve to be trained covertly as an assassin. Thank you for listening to this clip provided to you by Macmillan Audio. To hear more, look for this title wherever audiobooks are sold. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.